for every 10 people who try to innovate, I mean, I think only, only one, and maybe not even one, have a real appetite. Unless you're really committed, I suggest uh, don't take the detour. But if you are, God bless you, come to me, and I'll probably want to invest. Welcome to the Nurse Surgery Podcast. I'm Mike Wang, and I'm here with my co-host, Jake Peacols. We are here to discuss all things neurosurgical. Hi, this is J.P. Colson, a resident in neurosurgery at Rush University. Please note that this is not a CME event, and the opinions and statements made in this podcast do not reflect those of any institution or professional organization. Now, let's get started. I am so honored that I finally got a hold of John Adler and got him to come on our podcast. John, welcome to the Neurosurgery Podcast. Thanks, Mike. So I'm going to introduce you. Normally we have people introduce themselves because I first met you in 1992, I think it was. I was a medical student at Stanford, and you came to speak to the medical – they had all the specialties lined up. And uh, different, you know, people would get up ENT, I think Mike Fee was there, and, and you got up for neurosurgery, and you said something that just rocked my world. You said, there's nothing like holding a human brain in your hands, like a living brain. I thought, this guy's crazy. And then I pursued dermatology, but then Steve Chang, as you know, was like my housemate at Stanford, and, and I got very much interested in, in what you did, and he, he explained a lot about who you are and... You're a genius. I mean, that's the bottom line. Even among neurosurgeons, you're a genius. You've invented so many things that have changed healthcare, um, and and maybe maybe we can start with that. Like the the cyber knife is your baby, right? It's in every city. Everybody, lay people know about cyber knife. Tell us about the concept and how this started here uh, at Stanford. Uh, well, it started at Stanford because I was at Stanford, and I think the truth is it wouldn't have started most anywhere else because it was the right soil for my my seeds of intellect to sort of fall upon. So um, I dreamed it up while I was with Lars Luxell at the Karolinska, which was a magical place in the 1980s. Uh, Lars Luxell was a, a greater-than-life kind of figure. He invented the Gamma Knife, right, just for other yeah, listeners? Lars Luxell invented the Gamma Knife, and... Uh, Many would suggest he was one of the, you know, sort of three or four most formative figures in neurosurgery in the 20th century. Uh, this was a brilliant, brilliant, brilliant man. And uh, I just fell under his spell, but uh, was not satisfied with with uh, just following immediately in his footsteps, wanted to see if we couldn't do something next generation. And that was really the seeds for the cyberknife. And to me, it was self-evident if radiosurgery works so well in the brain, uh, well, why shouldn't it work everywhere in the body? And in the process of trying to solve that problem, it opened up new vistas in treating brain tumors. You know, bigger brain tumors, tumors harder to treat in certain locations. So, um, I mean, I, I mean, I personally think innovation is is a universal human trait. Mm-hmm. I don't believe that there's any human being alive that doesn't have innovative capabilities. The sad reality is that very few people end up pursuing their innovative instincts is because it's so friggin' hard. And, um, and then they're fear- fearful because you, you know, 99.99% of the time you're failing. And that's, it's, to be an innovator is to lead a life of discouragement. 
And of course, there are people like Edison who says, "Well, every time you fail, you realize what you you realize something new, and that should be celebrated." But I don't think it feels that well. Yeah. <laughs> it doesn't feel that way. They get slapped. A Not at the time, right? Time. Yeah. No, 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 no. Well, almost never. I mean, it's just it's a it's a long, long, hard slog. But I do wish more people would pursue the innovation path. Okay, so for our listeners who are not uh, not neurosurgeons or are not familiar, CyberKnife maybe we do. You, what would you like to describe what it does? Maybe sure. Yeah, I mean, <clears throat> the CyberKnife is a robotic uh, radiation system that uh, uses relatively sophisticated imaging. At the time, it was the best in the world, and still is. Maybe I'd like to suggest the best targeting system in the world to. Uh, very precisely identify where in the human body a lesion is, a tumor or some other malformation, and uh, allows the radiation to be cross-fired through that target with extreme precision. And when you're very, very accurate, you can then be very, very aggressive. And when you're very aggressive, you really transform what is kind of a, a tepid force, I, radiation being a tepid force, in my perspective, into something very, very potent. And that is transformative and allows you to destroy just about any tumor, any lesion in the body. Now, it's fascinating for those of you who haven't seen the CyberKnife, and this is not a commercial for it because we're here with the inventor of the CyberKnife. It, it is amazing to see that the, the this giant robot, thousands of pounds, moves with every respiration of the patient. As the patient's breathing, it moves in, in synchrony, right? I mean, in synchrony, that's the name beautiful. of the product. Very good, Mike. That's is synchrony. it really? Synchrony is the name of the product. I didn't know that. It's, it's beautiful. But, but My name. I got to tell you, like when, when it came about that this concept of CyberKnife to me was just fascinating. Um, and, and I was a medical student then when, when it was being, I guess when it was being released. When did it actually come to market in the U.S.? We treated our first patient in 1994. Okay, so I was a medical student then, okay. and I have to ask you a question because Steve Chang, uh, who's on, he's still on faculty at Stanford, right? Oh, I, he's a professor, big yeah, shot. Right, he got me started started into this, and I've given uh, dozens of major lectures on robotics now, major major lectures to thousands of people, right? And I'm on ViewMedi, I'm I'm talking about robots all the time, and I always put in this slide that says that neurosurgeons have a role because all the robots everybody thinks about are they're cobots. The CyberKnife is the only true robot that actually does the operation completely, right? It's a totally autonomous robot. It's yeah. programmed by the doc, but it takes off and does what it's instructed to do. You push a button, do. right? You push a button and That's it goes. That's right. So, um, but Steve, it doesn't get always get credit for it. It should. It should. <laughs> yeah, I don't want I move on to the next act, but so, that, it should. That's, I love that you say that. So Steve Chang told me this story that you, this was after the Loma Prieta, no, not the Loma, the, the, the Bay Area quake, right? Earthquake, yeah. which was in 1989. Right. I was an undergrad at Stanford. I remember that. And um, he said that he saw, he said that you saw um, people investigating the integrity of structures like bridges using a, a a backpack-mounted radiation device. Is that correct? Uh, linear accelerator. So X-rays are the therapeutic X-rays that destroy tumors um, are are generated by a device called a linear accelerator. And so yes, most of them are very large, but yeah. uh, but there was a company in Silicon Valley that had a very a portable one designed for industrial inspection in the field. And like the Golden Gate Bridge after a Loma Prieta earthquake was inspected with this linear accelerator, as was nuclear reactors where you 
you need to be confident that there isn't a crack in the core or something like that. So, so. tell us about this because that kernel of genius. And I heard that you saw a person on a bridge doing this. Is no, that true? that's that's all. That's not true. Okay, serendipity. In fact, but a patient made the introduction. A patient that uh, who I operate around for meningioma. And um, actually had an interesting behavioral disorder. I think I was an obsessive, compulsive kind of individual. But um, when I told him how I was going to get rid of tumors in the future, non-invasively, he was enamored. And he made it his mission in life to find a small linear accelerator for me. And lo and behold, it was right down the street from me. Wow. Now, if that isn't serendipity, what is? Wow. I, I got to tell you, this... I'm in the OR and I'm always telling, I'm quizzing people because you got to know history, right? Like what have neurosurgeons invented like, like everything, like, you know, all the hemostasis methods that are used today, largely, right? We, we, Anesthesia we, record? Yeah. <laughs> okay. Right? Bipolar, Bovi, Surgicel, Surgifoam, Gel Foam. We didn't invent the microscope, but we certainly were fast followers in the, the microscope. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, it's just fascinating to me, but, but in the modern era, there aren't that many inventors of note in that way, like like Victor Horsley, right? So, well, things are much more complex. Okay, yeah, tell us and, about and that. And so, you can't invent today the way you did, you know, two generations ago, where you know you had a good idea and the way to work. You stopped at a machine shop and you cobbled together something and you brought it to the, you know, brought it in the operating room, you know, later that day. It just doesn't happen anymore that way, and it's, and that's why. It's sad, but my life is kind of testament to it, is that at some point you need to make a decision whether or not you can keep operating, being an operating surgeon, or you have to kind of make the leap to dedicate yourself full-time to driving innovation. Yeah, Mike Apuzo, who, as you know, is one of my mentors, yeah. always said that the quickest way to become stupid is just operate all the time and not question what we <laughs> do, right? And uh, uh, Sure. I mean, to, to, you're, you're like a poster child, not that you don't operate a lot, but that, that you're... Not anymore. You, I've given up surgery. I've just reneged, or I gave up my credentials uh, two weeks ago. Well, uh, one congratulations. Week. Well, I don't know. I've, it's kind of a sad moment in my life, but... It's, Bittersweet. I mean, huh? I, I just... Couldn't deal with the, you know, the electronic medical record these days. Oh, jeez, uh, we have, we and, have a... And all, I mean, uh, I spent, I was spending 10 times as much time getting credentialed every year as I was actually we interviewed patients. Phil Stegett was interviewed yesterday about that, about burnout because of EMR. Uh, so, so let me, can I ask how old you are now, John? 65. Oh, perfect age, right? So many of our listeners, young men and women are out there. I've never worked harder for the record, so. <laughs> yes, it's amazing. You're like my dad. So um, many of our listeners, young men and women out there, are maybe getting inspired by hearing your voice uh, to invent something. What kind of advice do you have to offer for those folks? Don't do it. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, it's for every 10 people who try to innovate. I mean, I think only only one, maybe not even one, have a real appetite for what you need to go through. It's just... It's a very, very difficult, arduous path, and most people who embark on it, I don't think, are serious enough or committed enough. And so, if, if unless you're really committed, I suggest uh, don't take the detour. But if you are, God bless you, come to me, and I'll probably want to invest. So, if you're the real <laughs> deal, if you're the real deal, then you have no choice. No one's going to leave, and you're going to ignore what I'm just saying here anyway. So I'd rather try to discourage you up front, and if you're really the the real guy, you're not you're you're not going to listen to me in the first place, that's and that's good. Well, well you, let me ask you: got to be possessed by the idea. With, with the with the caveat that there are as many paths to invention as there are inventors, but in your experience and and in your own life and what you've seen, 
do you think a person needs the idea and then they find a vehicle and the path toward that idea? Or can someone who just wants to be involved in invention, wants to be involved in innovation, go somewhere, pursue working with people, get in that space, and let the ideas come? I, I think that's a, that's a really good question. I think you're right, that, that there are many paths to being part of the innovation process. And um, not everybody necessarily has the perfect idea. Um, but you can oftentimes connect yourself to people who maybe have a better idea than you, and that can be at lots of different levels. Um, one way I encourage almost all neurosurgeons to embrace is uh, open their wallet sometimes. Um, neurosurgeons are clearly among the best paid individuals in our society, and they tend to fall for a lot of investment scams. The beauty of being part of the innovation process is that Number one, you have the money. Number two, you've kind of understand the field. And number three, you can kind of suss out the legitimacy of the inventor. And then lastly, it's kind of, I think, kind of a, a should be part of the social, your social mission as a neurosurgeon. You know, why piss it away in bad investments when you can piss it away on, <laughs> on, on invention? That really makes a difference. Yeah. So it's kind of a double, you know, we here in Silicon Valley a lot, we talk about the, the double bottom line, the idea that you can ideally make a great, financial return, but also in the process, you know, kind of help change the world. So even if an invention, you don't sell, you know, two million units, uh, you may end up treating, you know, few tens of thousands of people who would otherwise have fewer and fewer options. Well, CyberKnife has changed everything, and I don't want to only dwell on that because people may come away thinking of this as being a unidimensional conversation. I want to get to two other areas, and I'm sure there are many more, but I want, to, I want you to just briefly tell us about Curious. Well, I mean, Curious is potential, yeah. so C-U-R-E-U-S, Curious. So mm. Curious is, I think, potentially the most disruptive idea of all that I've ever worked on. It's also the hardest um, because it requires not just changing the minds of a few physicians, but, you know, a critical, critical network. So um, journals are one of the most broken, you know, kind of entities in the entire medical world. Um, the idea that a copyright... Uh, stands between med life-saving medical knowledge um, uh, and physicians of the world and patients of the world should be, you know, kind of viewed as through moral outrage. Um, and many parts of the world, you know, even in Fresno, California, you know, doctors don't have access to state-of-the-art knowledge. If you go to places like India and, you know, and, you know China, 90%, 99% of physicians just don't have access to state-of-the-art medical knowledge. And so, um, but by the flip side is knowledge is becoming every bit more accessible in every other domain of the world. Maybe whether you want books or newspapers or magazines or, or music, I mean, you can find it just ubiquitously on the web today in a very, if not free, which it generally is, at a very, very ultra-low cost. Meanwhile, journals for a single damn article, you know, Elsevier wants 25 35 40 50 sometimes even $100 or more per article. And it's a stupid, stupid system. Now, if you're a member of the Congress, yeah, you get, you get access to neurosurgery, but that doesn't even give you access to journal of neurosurgery. So it's a stupid world that we live in, and yet all the world, all the work is done for nothing, for done by nothing by authors yeah, and reviewers. for free, for free, for free, for free. And so um, we feel that. And lastly, what are journals? Journals are social networks. It's a community of individuals that often have a common 
subject in which they're interested, you know, in this case, neurosurgery, and they work together to generate a product of universal community interest. So um, social networks, huh? come to think of it, we live in the social network area of the world. I mean, between LinkedIn and Facebook or you know, Instagram or something, journals are really the predecessor to what we see as the modern social network. And so um, what I've tried to do with Curious is connect the concept of a social network with a journal and believing that the network has more power than actually even the content, and yet the content itself is generated for free. And so uh, Curious is designed to be largely free, but sometimes the, at least the lowest cost structure in the, in the industry. And we're now we're publishing more than 3,000 articles this year, and we're growing at 60 70% a year this year, which is maybe more than that. But we've been growing at 100% a year now for several years. And so I'll stop when we publish our publishing about a few million articles a year. And because I think the world doesn't need 5,000 medical journals. It needs basically one medical journal. Yeah. And if you can do that, this is a financial home run. It's actually a community home run. It's a huge social network that patients can then tap into. So freeing medical knowledge is very important to me. You're fighting the Dutch mafia. <laughs> the Dutch and the Germans and the yeah. Brits and actually in Waltham, Massachusetts. Yeah. I mean, the New England Journal of Medicine makes a friggin' fortune. I mean, yeah. several hundreds of millions of dollars a year and it's buried away who God knows where. I mean, I think that... Well, I try to stay <laughs> not political, but I've actually canceled my subscription. I can't stand their articles anymore. The, the, it's like the New York Times. Yes, you know, the New York Times. It's very so sanctimonious. Simple. Yes, very... Sa oh, yes. Well, you're from you Boston. You want the truth, come to Curious. Yeah. <laughs> you're from Boston, Right? No, I'm from Connecticut, but Connecticut. I spent 15 years in Boston. Okay. I'm a Harvard guy, so okay, great. I know all the I know where all the skeletons are buried. <laughs> <laughs> so let's move on to the ne yet. To, I mean, this is fascinating. I mean, yet the next invention, and and I remember you telling me about it. My mind was blown when you when you came up with this new radiation therapeutic radiation device. And could, are you free to talk about it a little bit? Sure. I mean, okay. Uh, well, I'm excited. So um, I tell some people it's the son of Cyberknife. But um, it dawned on me about 10 years ago as I was going through a midlife crisis, I say that tongue-in-cheek, but um, that uh, the CyberKnife, I believe, represent one of the greatest, one of the bigger inventions in healthcare in modern times. Not just the CyberKnife, but radio surgery. Hmm. And yet, as I looked around the world is who was getting radiosurgery, I realized that there are more than 2 million patients a year who should be treated with radiosurgery who are not being, and it kind of became my mission to figure out both why they weren't being treated and how we might remedy this. So what so, were the barriers? Well, that was the first yeah. question you had to ask, and so why aren't we treating these 2 million patients a year? And it, it's pretty self-evident that radiosurgery is the most uh, radiosurgery equipment is the most expensive equipment in all healthcare today. It's also the most complex health equipment in healthcare today. And then lastly, I'll suggest uh, nurse surgeons don't get paid squat for doing radiosurgery, and yet the institutions were making a reasonable amount of money. And so we'll try to change the whole paradigm by which we think about radiosurgery. So the objective was to make a much lower cost, much easier to use technology, and ideally put it as much as possible in the hands of neurosurgeons directly so that they could both treat their patients more readily and ideally make a lot more money. Because neurosurgeons are financial animals and when the incentives are aligned correctly, neurosurgeons tend to just hit it out of the park. Now, did you, did you explain the device though? It's fascinating. Love to. Love okay. To. So the 
the ZAPX, which is the name of this technology, the company is Zap Surgical, but the ZAPX is a uh, first of its kind surgical robot. I want to emphasize this is a surgical robot dedicated to brain and head and neck radiosurgery. And it delivers really best in class radiosurgery for brain and head and neck tumors. And it does this in a way that doesn't require radiotherapy vault. So ideally, it should be in the back of your neuroscience clinic or in the back yeah, of your... Yeah, so for our listeners who, who don't understand this, radiation oncology, as you say, is always in the basement of the hospital, right? Always. Yeah. Every radiation therapy department in the world is, is basically entombed in concrete <laughs> because to protect the operator, you need to block... You need to shield the radiation that's delivered to the patient from reaching the operator. And so it takes lots, it takes literally three, four million pounds of concrete for every one of these machines. Um, Generally, that's easiest to put in the basement, but it could be on the ground floor, but it's never on the 10th floor. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, but ZAPX gets around that, right? The ZAPX has basically shrunk-wrapped a vault around the machine itself. And although it's not light, it weighs 25 tons, but it weighs, you know, 2% the weight of what a typical radiotherapy machine and fall. 2%. Yeah, 1%. 1 150th. 150th, yeah. So could you put it in a truck, for example? Oh, that's one of the things we're doing right now, yes. Yeah. So the idea is to make it, put surgery where the patients are, don't require patients to literally, in many cases, go hundreds of miles wow. to go where the equipment is. It should be ubiquitous. Is it too late to invest? <laughs> yeah, you're laughing at me. I was like, come on. You're in Silicon Valley, so stupid question. So, so this is so fascinating to me because, I mean, you've taken so many great ideas. And not only did you – I mean, these are truly innovative ideas. It's not like – like I have a patent on a bone wax, right, that dissolves. So whatever. It pays a little royalty. It's not revolutionary, but I'm really, really proud of it, right? Congratulations. So, Maybe used by a lot of people. Used by a so, lot of cardiac surgeons, right? Actually, cool. not even neurosurgeons. But what you've done is revolutionary. Now, are there any other, I mean, not that we're not asking to pick your brain, but like things we haven't heard about that you're doing that are super exciting? Well, actually, one of the things I'm most excited about is some of the basic research I'm doing in the context of SAP Surgical. So we are demonstrating how radiation doesn't just destroy tissues, but how it can downregulate neurocircuits. And so the goal here has been to see how radiation will become a ubiquitous tool to modulate brain circuits that underlie addiction, depression, obsessive compulsive disease. And so um, um, it's the tools and means to the end. You know, Charles Liu's doing stuff like that, but with electricity... Uh, and they have a they have a corporation which is really fascinating. But this is this sounds like much more a reasonable proposition to me. Well, we we know it works already because we treat, we treat things like trigeminalgia that mm-hmm. that downregulate with radiation. We know whole brain radiotherapy downregulates the brain. But we've had to go back to animals, so it's kind of ironic to do real research as an academic. I had to go into industry, and where we're you know now treating pigs, but soon animals. And, and I think this will just be one tool that neurosurgeons use in the future as we re-engineer the brain. Because it won't just be radiosurgery with the ZAPX. I think it'll maybe involve other new drugs and things like high-intensity focus ultrasound. But we are going to re-engineer the brain, not just in five years, but for the next hundreds, hundreds of years. We are going to be treating human pathologies like addiction by rewiring what we know is to be a faulty circuit. And I think that the ZAPX, I expect to be part of that solution. 
Are you inspired, JP? I mean, it's crazy, right? I can't describe it. So I, I'm at the start of my career, and I cannot wait to see what you have in store for me when I get out there. Well, I'm hoping that you're going to be one of the people who push it at the frontiers going forward. Right. Well, we'd, we'd love to have you back again to hear an update on, on all the things you're doing. As always, it's, it's a pleasure, and, and I'm, I'm totally, my mind's blown again. Thanks, Thanks, Mike. Thank you, sir.